Welcome back to the program here Monday to Friday, noon Eastern, 9 Pacific. Coming up in hour two, Scott Morrison, author of uh, 1972, the series that changed hockey forever. It's a really great book. ScoMo's book last year, by the way, the one that he did with Rick Five is outstanding. This one, fascinating as we're uh, getting ready to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the series around which discussion will never end in this country, folks. Uh, very much looking forward to talking to Scott Morrison. In the meantime, very much looking forward to talking to Vince Mercogliano from uh, Aloha.com and USA Today about the Rangers, uh, the season that was and the off season that will be. Vince, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you, pal? Good. Finally, uh, finally getting a little relaxing time in here, Jeff. How are you? Uh, yeah, I'm good. How's how's the run been for you? I mean, on the one hand, it's uh, it's exciting, but on, then on the other hand, you the uh, the responsibilities of of normal everyday life sort of smack you in the face when the the team you're covering goes out, and you realize how far behind you are. How far behind are you, Vince, in quote unquote real life right now? Well, yeah, very far behind. I, I have a one-year-old, and we're also navigating oh, wow. the move. We, clo- we we closed on a new place at the end of April, which was not ideal timing from a hockey standpoint. But sure. uh, yeah, I mean, it's been you know no no complaints from me at all. My fiance, thankfully, is very very understanding and supportive. I don't think it would work if she wasn't with this job. Yeah. And so, coming off of basically two months without a day off, we're finally getting some family time in, getting some stuff great. done around the new place. And yeah, so it's been, it's been good, but I mean, it was a, it was a great ride. It was exciting. That was my first time covering real playoffs. So it, it was an amazing experience for sure. And it was a great run. And first of all, congratulations to all three of you. Um, and, thank you. And thank best, you. Best of, best of luck with the, with the new place. I know that's very exciting. Remember when my wife and I got our first you know new house, it was a ton of work and, and well worth it. Um, even though the renovations no, never seem to stop nonetheless. Yeah. Um, yes. I'm okay, learning so, that now. <laughs> just, just settle in. It's, it's always a work in progress. Yeah. Let me, um, yeah. let me here, here's what I've been saying about the Rangers the last couple of days. Cause like many of us and you more than most of us, I've been thinking a lot about what's next for New York. And I've also been thinking about, you know how you would how you would couch this season, and I go back to Game One and the game against the Washington Capitals, when we thought it was going to be you know Ali Frazier, we thought it was going to be Hagler Hearns, we thought it was going to be this you know this boxing match on ice you know for for three full periods. Instead, what we got was the Washington Capitals you know beating the New York Rangers uh, on the ice on the scoreboard from stem to stern for three periods. And we wondered how, and we thought the team was improved. And then after that game, we said, hmm, maybe they're not as improved as we thought they were. Yet here we go. They take the two-time defending Stanley Cup champions, uh, you know, into, into game three with a 2 nothing series lead and a 2 nothing lead in that game. And if I would have told you, Vince, that after that first game against the Capitals, that this was going to happen with the Rangers, you probably would have said, oh, what a wonderful season for New York. Is that how they're feeling, though? And is that how Rangers fans are feeling? You know, there, I got the sense at breakup day yesterday with the players, and I'm also getting the sense from the fans that there are a lot of mixed emotions right now. And Mika Zibanejad, I thought, put this pretty well yesterday when, when we were speaking to him. It's for guys like that especially. And you've seen him and Chris Kreider, I would say, have been the most emotional of this group of Rangers because those are veteran guys that know how difficult it is to make it to this point. Mika's never been here before. Kreider had to wait all these years to get back there. So I think they have this sense that it is a missed opportunity, that they can't take it for granted, and and you never know when you're going to get back there. But I also know that to a man, everybody in that locker room, and we spoke spoke to all of them yesterday, were saying that, that this has to be a building block, that this has to be something that they learn from, they grow from. And you look at the young core of this team, you have to believe that they will have other runs in them in the future. Kreider used this example. He said the sting from this loss is important to remember and use as fuel, and he likened it to what Tampa Bay went through in 2019 when they were swept by the Columbus Blue Jackets in the first round, and then we know what happened from there. So they are definitely – the message in that locker room is definitely to learn from this and then keep this in the back of your mind throughout the offseason as you're preparing for next year because they do expect to be back here again. You never know if that will happen, but when you mm-hmm. look at – all the talent on this team and the way the roster is constructed, and especially when you consider that they have Igor under contract for the foreseeable future, you have to feel like they'll at least have a chance to get back here. 
who uh like what what do you think this what do you think this organization Chris Drury on down learned about this team this season like I want to get to the off season and the moves and all that but I'm I'm curious about you know the 82 games and getting into the conference final what did that what did that teach this organization you think well you know the the big thing and, and it's kind of become a cliche at this point but the resiliency of this group I don't think can be discounted because we saw it throughout the regular season they never lost more than two games in a row every little bit of adversity that seemed to hit them they always found a response and I think a lot of us were saying okay it's one thing to do that in the regular season but can you carry it into the playoffs and they certainly did you look at the way they rallied back from 3-1 against Pittsburgh the way that they were able to come back and then win that game seven on Carolina's home ice when we all felt like Carolina was a team that had had their number in recent years so this team for sure has that it factor they have that knack for coming up clutch and not wavering when times get tough. So that is certainly, I think, in a lot of ways, the biggest takeaway. You also have to feel really good about what you saw from the young players. There was growth from Lafreniere and, and tremendous growth from Heedle and Keandre Miller. And, you know, Igor, we know what he is, but he this was yeah. really his first playoff run, and to see him come through the way that he did was huge for them. So you have to feel good about the young core, obviously. There's some questions surrounding Capo Caco now, but I, I did think he had some positive signs in the playoffs as well. But, you know, I think moving forward, you also have to think about this team and what they are. The fact of the matter remains that they would probably not have reached that point if not for Igor. They're not a great possession team. We saw their five-on-five offense really get shut down for long stretches in the playoffs. They had one even-strength goal in the last four games against Tampa. So I think what the Rangers have to consider now is, you know, do they need – better possession players, players who can generate more offense, or I've also spoken to some people who believe that the Rangers might want to go more in the direction of what Carolina has and maybe build themselves a shutdown line, a line that's a little more defensive oriented and add more speed into their lineup because the teams like that were the teams that kind of gave them trouble this season. So the few directions they can go right now, their cap space is very limited, but I'm curious to see how jury attacks this offseason season and, and which areas he prioritizes. So the uh, you mentioned Capo Caco there a second ago, so I, I, I got to get there. Um, the Capo yep. Caco scratch on Saturday, the grenade uh, rolled into the room with the pin pulled out. Yeah. Subsequent, yeah. whether from the coach or from the player himself, helped matters in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I don't know that this is the first, you know, the 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 first issue that the Rangers have to deal with. Like, listen, there's you know, there's there's Cop and there's Strom at center, there's Joey Petrano, and there's players that are that are that are due deals that you're one year out on. Uh, Keandre Miller uh, being front and center, but you know, how big a, I mean, for lack of a better way to phrase it, how big a deal is this right now within this Rangers organization? Like, how does the team feel? How does the player feel? You know, the decision they make here, does that, you know, how does that affect, you know, everything from, you know, the uh, the uh, the makeup of the team next season to, you know, where the player wants to be, dare I say, offer sheets. I know there's a, there's a team in Raleigh that likes offer sheeting Finnish hockey players, but I'll leave the answer to you. Uh, how do you think the Capo thing plays itself out? Well, the Rangers are definitely downplaying this as not a big deal, only a one-game thing. And, and for his, for his, I will say this about Kako. Kako is not, he has never struck me as a really emotional, reactionary kind of guy. He, he's pretty much even keel. He's not the kind of guy who I can see causing a lot of drama. And when he was asked yesterday, will this affect how you handle your RFA summer, would this make you more likely to maybe consider with another team? He said, I don't think so. I like to play here. And he, he pretty much kept it at that. So he, he said, if anything, this is going to be motivation that he wants to prove to Gallant next season that he deserves to be in the lineup every single day. He said that he thought that he made strides in the playoffs and, and that he deserves to be in the lineup. So I didn't sense a lot of discontent from him yesterday which i think is is an encouraging sign if you're a rangers fan but you also do have to consider the history here and gerard gallant admitted yesterday that he had no conversation with kako with kako to let him know why this decision was made or that he was going to be out of the lineup kako told us the same thing he said he didn't find out 
until he saw the lineup hanging in the locker room. And that, that lack of communication, uh, to me, is a bit alarming because we've seen the Rangers go down this road before. And whether, whether they think that this is you know, valid, valid or relevant or not, it, it still is part of their recent history. They had issues with Leas Anderson, who was their first top 10 pick in 2017. They ultimately had to trade him for a second-round pick. We know they've had issues with Vitaly Kratsov, who expected to make the team at a training camp this year. And when he didn't, he was very disappointed and refused an assignment to go to the AHL and went back to Russia. Now, you know, they seem to be playing nice with him recently, but we know that that relationship is somewhat frayed. Another top 10 pick for them from 2018. So there just seems to be this pattern of, of not really communicating the plans. And, w- and when you think about it, even, you know, Gallant said that the reason they didn't play Kako in game six was from a hockey perspective. They were just looking to give themselves the best chance to win. But that explanation doesn't make much sense either because I, I just mentioned yeah. that the Rangers were struggling to score at even strength. Kako is a much better offensive player than the guy that they put in and dried and hunt. I, I just don't see any, it seemed like a very short-sighted, ill-advised move to me to, to, to pull him out, risk fracturing the relationship for what benefit? You know what I mean? I just, to me, it was, it was a really silly move. I don't know if Kako is going to handle it by, you know, looking around for another team or, or making a big deal about it this offseason. I personally am not getting that sense at this point, but it still seemed like, a, like just one of those things that makes you shrug your shoulders and wonder why they would go down that road in the first place. Andrew Kopp. Ryan Strom, Frank Fertrano, how would you handicap who's coming back and who's not? Vetrano, I think, is definitely a goner. I think the, the Rangers really liked what they got from him. But if you look at their salary cap situation, they, they simply can't afford it. The way that their roster is constructed right now, if you look at everybody who is on the playoff roster, they have 16 players who are going to be under contract next season and a little under $12 million in remaining salary cap space. So it's simply a numbers game. They can't afford to bring all these guys back. So Vetrano, especially because he's a winger and they have depth at winger, especially when you look at their prospects, I think he's probably not going to come back. The center position is the much bigger area of need. And I think that they would ideally like to bring back Strom and or Cop, but the reality is they can only afford one of them. I know, and I reported on this back in November, the Rangers made an effort to extend Ryan Strom during the season. And Strom told us yesterday, he, he confirmed that they had had contract negotiations during the season. The Rangers were looking to land him at a number that I was told between five and five and a half million per season, and they weren't able to come to an agreement. I think part of that was years. Strom wanted probably more years than the Rangers were willing to offer. But my sense mm-hmm. now is that Maybe that ship has sailed. Now, Strom was very clear yesterday. He wants to be back. He loves it here. He got emotional talking about how much he's poured his heart into being a Ranger, and he has been a very good Ranger. But Cop, I think from the Rangers' perspective, brings a little bit more versatility. He can kill penalties. He's much better on faceoffs than Strom. He can play multiple positions. He's a bigger, more physical guy. And, and offensively, he was great in his time here. He had, if you include the playoffs, he played 36 games at the Rangers. He had 32 points. So they believe, and Gerard Glant said this yesterday, that he can be a top six guy. So I would put Cop as probably the favorite of those three to return, which would rule mm. Strom out from a financial perspective. And then Vetrano definitely, uh, because uh, as I mentioned, just, just him not playing center is going to hurt his chances. But I, I would say Cop is the favorite, but I wouldn't rule out none of them coming back and the Rangers looking in a different direction either. I think they're going to explore a lot of options. You know, I've got about a minute and a half for this one, but back to Andrew Cobb, do you think that, because I think the market is somewhere around uh, the Philip Deneau contract or maybe even the Zach Hyman deal. Do you think he could get something along the lines of seven years, $38 million from the Rangers? I think it's going to have to land in that five to five and a half range for the Rangers. That is, that is what they have identified. My understanding is, as what they can afford for a second line center. Because if you spend five, like I said, if you have about 12, if you spend five, that only leaves you with 7 million and you have to re-sign Capo Caco. You have to re-sign Sammy Blay. They would love to bring back Tyler Mott, who they see as a great fit on their fourth line. They need a backup goalie. So that money gets eaten up pretty quickly. They, whoever they bring in mm. for center, it's going to, I think, have to be a number that starts with a five. Don't disagree. Uh, Vince, this has been great. Listen, congratulations uh, to you, your fiancé, and your child. Good luck with the rest of the move, and we will uh, we'll check back soon. And enjoy enjoy your, uh, your splash back into real life, my friend. You be well. Thanks, Jeff. Really appreciate it.
There he is, Vince Bercogliano, who covers the uh, the New York Rangers for USA Today and Lohud.com. Uh, that guy's all over the beat. And yeah, he was, uh, listen, quite accurate back in November reporting that the trade, the uh, trade, the uh, re-signing discussions between the New York Rangers and Ryan Strom, someone that we saw is really valuable to this team. And you saw him at the press conference and close out, like this guy is through and through, like he's found a home. He was drafted by the Islanders. He played with the Oilers, but this guy has found a home with the New York Rangers and found a home playing specifically with Artemi Panarin. And when he got hurt in that uh, in that series against Tampa and wasn't available to play, like it became obvious right away, like with all due respect to Barkley Goodrow, that without Ryan Strom, I mean, what, what, what the 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 nature of the tweets from from Rangers faithful is like? Okay, get this get this guy up on the first line here now. Like you got to figure out a way to maximize Panarin. And he needs someone that can get him the puck. And that's what Ryan Strom has always been able to do. Rangers are, once again, going to be a fascinating team to follow in the offseason. We'll see what happens there with Chris Drury's squad. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll come back and talk to Scott Morrison. I miss Gomo. We'll talk to him about his latest book, 1972, The Series That Changed Hockey Forever. Another book about the Summit Series, and it's Scott Morrison. So, you know, there's something new, and there's a couple of new twists and new information, new perspective about the series around which hockey conversation in this country will probably never end. And that's cool because it's all new perspectives with each generation that grows up looking backwards at 1972. Scott Morrison, my old iDesk buddy, in moments on The Merrick Show. Breaking down everything in Leafsland better than anyone. Real Kipper and Born. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Hour 2 of the program. Jeff Merrick along with you. The uh, Merrick Hockey Show continues on this Tuesday, June 14th. Very appropriate day to have Scott Morrison aboard. Here's why. One, I want to talk about his latest book, 1972, The Series That Changed Hockey Forever. As we're poised to celebrate the major anniversary, the 50th of the Summit Series. Also, this is a day where the Hockey Hall of Fame awards the Elmer Ferguson to Al Morganti, the Foster Hewitt to Bill Clements. Foster Hewitt called that series in 1972, and the Elmer Ferguson Award uh, today is uh, awarded to Al Morganti. was once upon a time awarded to my next guest. Uh, he's my dear friend and a wonderful hockey treasure in this company. He is Scott Morrison, and he joins me now. Skomo, how are you today, pal? I'm doing well, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you again. Oh, man, great to hear your voice. Um, I, I want to get to the book, but before we get there, uh, I want to talk about uh, the Foster, uh, the, I want to talk about the Elmer Ferguson, rather. Uh, Al Morganti, I want to get your thoughts on him. But before we get there, uh, I still remember, I remember congratulating you uh, when you were awarded the Elmer Ferguson. I know that's one you take a lot of pride in. I know that's a, a luncheon you never you never want to miss. Um, can you describe that feeling? Like, let's go back a few, a few years here when you uh, were awarded the Elmer Ferguson. Yeah, it was 2006, and uh, I was in Edmonton that day, <clears throat> and uh, for the, in the playoffs, and got the phone call from the late uh, Jim Kelly, uh, representing the Professional Hockey Writers Association, and it's, you know, it's one of those things. I, I'd been on committees previously that had, had inducted people or uh, given out the award, and uh, but it's not something that you're necessarily thinking about yourself. You're having the time of your life doing your job, and then when you get a call like that and uh, you know what sinks in is that you're being awarded and acknowledged by your peers uh, you know people who have been in the business for a number of years and that who you respect and uh, to have them come along and say hey you did, you had a pretty good career you've done a pretty good job that mm-hmm. that means a lot and uh, uh, you know and then to be able to share it with with family and friends uh, and and colleagues because so many people are a part of the journey that uh, it's just uh, it's an incredible time. Uh, do you have a couple of thoughts here on on Al Morganti, a really nice man. Jeez, I've read Al Morganti for you know, listen, going back to when I can uh, first remember you know reading hockey articles. Um, do you have a thought on Al Morganti? 
Yeah, I mean, Al was a terrific, or is still a terrific writer, and uh, more so into the broadcasting side of it at this stage, as a lot of people morphed uh, over the years from the newspaper business into the broadcast side or a, or a hybrid. But he was a tremendously gifted writer. He had a, a great sense of humor. He could uh, he could make a point without having to embarrass someone, uh, but get the point across that maybe they'd made a mistake or they weren't playing well enough or uh, you know, that a change needed to be made, that type of thing, without it being personal, uh, but keeping it very professional. And he was a, a keen observer of the game. And, uh, you know, like a lot of us, had to do his writing on deadline and, and wrote very well. And, uh, you know, I guess the, the term that you always want to hear if you're a writer, whether it's uh, writing for newspapers, magazines, I guess, websites, and ultimately even books, is uh, you want to be called the must-read. And now certainly was a a must-read in Philadelphia and and outside that market. Tough beat, hey? Like, when you look around all the beats around around the National Hockey League, that that is uh, a demanding fan base. And as much as Al was able to, I don't know, give a a soft landing while giving a scolding at the same time, like, that's a a fan base that wants it honest and wants it raw and doesn't care whose feelings get hurt along the way, Scotty. No, as the old line goes, and it's a true line, they once booed Santa Claus in Philadelphia. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, being gentle is not uh, a characteristic that is uh, often applauded, that's for sure. But uh, it's a tight rope we all walk. And I'll tell you what, yeah. back in the heyday, that city had some of the greatest uh, hockey writers, Al Morgandy, oh, on boy. with one paper, my late great friend Jay Greenberg. Uh, was writing at the time too. They had some terrific columnists. It was a, it was a, I mean, it's a great hockey city. Period. But it was a great hockey city from a media perspective as well, and still is. Uh, absolutely. Congratulations to Elmer Ganti and uh, and Bill Clements uh, today. Award the Elmer Ferguson and the Foster Hewitt Awards, uh, respectively. Um, Boy, I was so happy to find out that you were writing this book uh, about 1972 as we're all ready for the, the, the big celebration. And unfortunately, as we all know, we've, we've lost a lot of members uh, from that 1972 team, uh, the Summit Series team. Uh, your book is called 1972, The Series That Changed Hockey Forever. Phil Esposito with the foreword. And, you know, not a, a lot of people have, you know, uh, sung the praises. Uh, most, I'm a big fan of Tim Cook. And hearing you preach, uh, hearing him preach about how, you know, you know Scott Morris and masterful, uh, masterful understanding of the game just warms my heart knowing that there's two people I really respect yourself uh, and you know great military writer Tim Cook um, why why this one Scotty like the the last book you did was with Rick Vive which you know you say it's a it's it's flattering to hear must read that is a must read book a fascinating look at, at Rick Vive's uh, careers as you helped him and as told through his voice um, but why this one why 72 well I mean it's 50 years, but <clears throat> will be 50 years in the fall. And, you know, this is more than just a great hockey series. This was a, a series of great Canadian moments. It was a where were you moment in our history. And you think about some of those over the course of time. You think a lot of our, our American friends would tell you where they were if you're uh, obviously a, of a certain vintage when President Kennedy was shot or where were you when the man first man on the moon and for canadians i guess vimy ridge was was a time for the very senior but uh for a a large chunk of this country and keep in mind at that time it it was estimated that our population was roughly 25 million that 16 million people were watching those games uh night after night and uh, you know, the, the title of the first book was The Days Canada Stood Still, and our country did stand still during that time, especially during those uh, four games in Moscow after what had transpired in the first three. But, you know, you have to think about and appreciate where our country was at, their time, at that time, and in some ways the, it wasn't entirely different, but, you know, we'd come off the FLQ crisis in Quebec in 1970, yep. Uh, all sorts of issues with the province of Quebec, with the West seemed divided. And, you know, you had at the time a prime minister named Trudeau, if you can believe it, but he was a big proponent in helping to pull this series together as well because he felt like we needed a, a unifying moment. And, uh, and that series brought the country together uh, only in a way that nobody had really anticipated when it was first imagined. You know, it was, um, it's a... Uh... 
It's it's interesting because I, I love different perspectives on this series. Like I'm a big fan of, you know, the idea of the Zen rock garden where you can't see all the rocks if you just stand in one place. You have to keep moving around. Um, you know, I was a big and still am Akira Kurosawa fan. I think he's one of the greatest, maybe the greatest filmmaker of all time. And uh, Rashomon, where, you know, the basic premise of the story is there's a murder and then the entire scene is lived out again through the perspective of a number of different characters. It's a, it's a device that goes back some time. As a matter of fact, they once did this on Gilligan's Island. So don't think that I'm, you know, some pretentious guy who's just referencing Kurosawa. I could also couch it by saying they did this on Gilligan's Island, Scott. But I love the different, the different angles that people can take and different positions that they have and takes they have on the series. And I always learn something. And you know, was reading a a piece a few years ago, and I can't remember who the. Uh, who the, the the Russian player was, but the point that he brought up was it wasn't an eight-game series to us. It was a one-game series. That The Summit series was only about the first game. The Summit series was just about Montreal. And, you know, Canada goes up, and then the Soviets storm back to win. And the point that he was trying to make in the piece was that was a moment that the Soviet Union showed not just Canada but the entire world that they had arrived that they had arrived on the international stage. You know, the World Championships, oh yeah, Canadians aren't sending their best players, no NHLers, etc. But that was the moment for them of legitimacy, that they were a legitimate international hockey powerhouse that could compete with and beat Team Canada. For them, it was just about Montreal. How do you react to that one? I don't disagree. I think that's a, it's a great assessment. And, you know, I was just going to say, you asked the question why is... That was the first of its kind. It was the first time our best, without with a few exceptions for because of WHA and injury, but the first time that our best played their best. And part of the backdrop of, of the hockey world at that time was that the Soviets were dominating internationally and you know, the Canadians were frustrated because we could only send our best amateurs and we weren't winning. And we wanted to see that change and kind of prove that we were the dominant country. Uh, so there was two countries that wanted to be doing some boasting on a hockey rink and <laughs> with the politics of the day, and it, maybe it still exists to, to these days, but a lot of the chest thumping that countries would do, you'd have a communist country versus a capitalist country. The, the chest thumping would be about, if you could put one of your athletes on the podium with a gold medal, that spoke to you, you had a better way of life, you had a better system there was a lot of that chess something. And you think the backdrop of 72 again, Jeff, was mm-hmm. uh, you had, you know, the Olympics were going on uh, during the early part of that series. But there was also a ch- international chess match, U.S. versus Soviets. And, th- and the world yeah. was paying attention to that because it was about those bragging rights. So uh, yeah. with the Soviets wanting to prove themselves on a, on a grander sca- uh, stage, yeah, the, the result that they got in that first game uh, after Canada took the two nothing lead, you know, score thirty seconds in, and then up two nothing after six minutes, and everybody thought thought the the route was on. Well, it was, but in the opposite direction, a seven three victory for the Soviets. And yes, it did show that they could play with us. The circumstances maybe tilted it more in their direction at that point because our guys didn't take them seriously. They were told they didn't have to take them seriously. They didn't train hard because that's not what we did in the summertime, and. Uh, and then you you go in and you get a, a great beginning and you're not in condition and all of a sudden you realize just how good they are and how conditioned they were, skilled and conditioned. And you know even when it was two nothing, some of the players talked about going back to the bench and just saying, you know, Brad Park turning to uh, somebody on the bench and just saying, oh my God, we, we're in trouble here. These guys are good. They're better than advertised. So and that, I think part of the reason why I mean you talk to the Soviet players and. You know, Yakushev says, I've got video of that series, and it's still in this box. It's never been opened, and it won't be opened by me in my lifetime because I'm still mm. sour about the result. But having yeah. said that, they still celebrate the series very much so uh, across the pond. The anniversaries, they've treated the, the Canadian players, had them over, and, and celebrated despite losing because in many ways there were two winners in that series. Our guys eventually did what was expected of them, to win in a very different way, again, than what was imagined. And they proved that they could play with us. So it was a win-win in many ways, but only one winner ultimately on the scoreboard. 
You know, further to that point that you bring up about Brad Park, I remember, Scott, having a, a conversation with Ron Ellis, at, actually at the Hockey Hall of Fame. And, you know, Ron Ellis was, you know, Paul Henderson's, you know, line mate with, the, uh, with, with, uh, with, with Team Canada for the entire Summit Series. And, and Bobby Clark. One of the, and Bobby Clark, yeah, the, the Flynn Flan kid. Boy, how about that on the way back playing Czechoslovakia? Woof. Um, anyhow, um, he brought up a really interesting point, and we talk so much about the clash of styles. And at that point, a lot of Canadian hockey, I mean, it was still very much a almost like a, a table hockey game, like you grab the puck and you rushed it. And we all know about the Soviet passing, right? And this goes all the way back to Anatoly Tarasov, who would count passes at the World Championships, and he found whichever team completed the most passes, generally, almost overwhelmingly, those were the teams that won. And that became part of the Soviet system of moving the puck with the idea that, again, the puck moves faster than the feet. But the one thing that we saw in 72 was and you know this scotty like the russians would the soviets would attack the blue line if there wasn't a play normally in north america the puck gets dumped in you work it along the boards and you try to dig it out but the russians would circle back and they would regroup and ron ellis told me that you know they would come back to the bench almost laughing when the soviets would do that and i said why why did you guys find it so funny he goes well we were nervous because to your point scotty these weren't you know in shape hockey players they thought there was going to be a laughable series canada was going to romp all over them it was going to be eight nothing and you know uh, come back victorious after the four the, the four games at luzhniki he said look we were out of shape and if they he said it's an interesting comment if the soviets would have played a north american style and just hit the blue line and dumped it in and made us skate to retrieve it and made us try to skate the puck out after getting the puck, we would have been dead. It would have been uh, defensive zone turnover after defensive zone turnover. If they would have made us skate, they would have wore us out every single game. He said, you can even maybe make the argument that what saved Canada was the way the Soviets played, that they didn't take advantage of how out of shape we actually were. They let us float because their system called for constant uh, puck possession, but not puck pressure. What do you think of that comment? Oh, absolutely. And especially in those first four games in Canada. I mean, as the series got on and they got the game five eventually in Moscow, they started to find their, their legs and they were in much better condition. But those first four games, had they dumped and chased, uh, they would have skated them right into the ground. And the Canadians would be the first to tell you that. Uh, top to bottom on the roster, and even some of the Soviet players, Trechak, Yakushev, have uh, said in subsequent years, and they've said so in the book as well, that one of the failures of the Soviet, or the Russians in that series, was that they they didn't alter their game plans at any point, really, dramatically in the series, and and they think that that ultimately cost them, and that the Canadians did a better job of adjusting as the series moved along. Do you think that was part of, because let's just be honest about this, like there was an arrogance on both sides that our system is better than your system. And we always talk about, you know, the tree that bends is the one that doesn't break. Canada bent, like that tree bent and they changed the way they approached the game. They changed the way they played. When the Soviet system wasn't working against Canada, they didn't change at all. They just doubled down. On what yeah. they on, on 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 what they were doing, like do you do you think that that was part? And listen, I'm not saying that the Canadians weren't arrogant in this as well. They certainly were, but do you think part of that failure of the Soviet Union was just due to their arrogance about their system? Yeah, I think uh, as we mentioned off the top, that so much of this was about bragging rights of saying the way you not just the way you lived and what your culture and your politics were that they were better it's that how you played the game was better and i think the mm-hmm. soviets believe that and you know the canadian defensemen would tell you is that they knew that they could they could block off lanes uh and and feel very very comfortable as the series moved on because they knew there wasn't going to be they knew where the puck was going to go that there wasn't going to be any alteration to what was going to happen on when they attacked and so they became very predictable. And the Soviets will tell you that that themselves, that they became too predictable as the series marched along. Now, having said that, they were only a goal and 34 seconds away from <laughs> from <clears throat> maybe winning the thing themselves. So, uh, yeah. But that's one of the things. And, you know, the uh, Tarasov, the great Soviet coach who was replaced prior to that series uh, with yes. the national team, the one thing he said, 
and it's maybe not happened or has over time, but he said that they never really understood the Canadians' emotion and the emotion they played with on the ice and that little extra bit of passion and what a difference maker it was. You know, as John Ferguson Jr., who years ago was, uh, he was at a World Junior Tournament where the Canadian kids came back in a game against, it might have been a gold medal game against uh, the Soviets, <clears throat> and they won. And nobody could believe that it happened. And it's a quote that came out of 72, and then John Jr., of course his dad, was the assistant coach for the Harry Sinden on the Team Canada in 72. John says, I always remember the line, you can't teach Canadian. And the, even the Soviet players will say that, that they, they had to learn what a Canadian, how different a Canadian player was from the way they, they played and the, the comportment that they had on the ice. So here, here becomes the question, and I'm talking to Scott Morrison, author of 1972, The Series That Changed Hockey Forever, an outstanding book. Uh, I encourage all of you to, uh, to pick up. Um, let me ask you about this then. This is just your, your, your opinion. There's no, there's no right or wrong answer. The Canadian victory in 1972, did it help or hurt Canadian hockey? And, and here, here's how I'll frame it. There is a belief amongst some that the victory in 1972 allowed Canadian hockey and that style to continue while other countries changed and adapted and found new ways to play the game. The loss, like a, a loss by Team Canada, a loss by Team Canada may have forced this country to profoundly change the way they feel about hockey, they look at hockey, and most importantly, play hockey. We know it was a win when you look at the scoreboard, but overall, was it a win for Canada? I think it was. I think, to your point, we did continue to play in certain ways, a style that what we would call Canadian hockey and what that was all about. Uh, but I also think that that series opened a lot of eyes. There are eyes that were open with the likes of the late Bill, Billy Harris and, and uh, Brian Conacher and, uh, and, to a certain extent, Ken Dryden, who had been exposed and played against and coached against uh, the Soviets prior to that series. So they knew what they were about. But I think it opened our eyes to a lot of different things from a training perspective uh, on and off the ice and some adaptation of style and not too far on the heels of, of that series. You had a, a you know, Fred Shiro uh, coming in and adapting and using some of their ways, bringing in That's an true. assistant coach, that type That's of thing. True. So yeah. I, I, we maybe not didn't evolve as, as fast as we might've otherwise, but I, I still think there was a lot of, a learning went along, came out of that, and that, and that we grew as a result of that. And I think again, you know, as how the game changed from those perspective of how we played, how we prepared, uh, how we trained, um, and then all of a sudden, you know, you've got those international tournaments came along. You had seventy four WHA, but then the Canada Cup started, and I think, yep. uh, I think the learning really started to to take off at that point, and. Uh, you know, years later when the Iron Curtain came down and then the door opened for uh, uh, for the international players to come up, come over without having to escape their countries to do it and that type of thing. And I think there was a, a broader mind of uh, wanting to have an influx of, of the European players, not just the Soviets, but the Europeans in the NHL. I'm really glad you brought up the name Fred Shiro, Scott. Um, I think he was, uh, as much as we look at that Philadelphia Flyers team and say, oh, it was just a, a team that, that roughhoused their way to two Stanley Cups and beat everybody up and took their lunch money and their per diem, etc. Uh, we tend to forget how skilled the team that Flyers squad was. And Fred Shiro, their head coach, um, unlike many of his other you know, coaching colleagues, like he paid strict attention to Soviet hockey, was a big fan of Anatoly Tarasov, and you just referenced his name a couple of seconds ago as well, um, and would go to the Soviet Union and learn the systems and talk to the players and, and talk to the coaches and brought that back. And the one thing that we, you know, I, I don't think we give enough attention to as it relates to that Philadelphia Flyers squad was how they moved the puck. 
of how of how how the, how they moved. We just thought, oh, they go, they're gooning it to the end to, to the Stanley Cup. They moved the like that was a really good. There's Leach and McLeish and Clark and Barb. Like there's a this is a really talent. This was a really talented squad, and and Fred Shearer was the one that put it all together. Let me let let me uh <laughs> so. I'm curious about one of the arenas. I'm very curious about Luzhniki, but I want to ask you about Maple Leaf Gardens. So, um, I still think that the best fight ever at Maple Leaf Gardens was probably Wendell Clark versus Rick Tockett. You can yep. make the argument Terry Harper versus Orlin Curtin back, and I'll listen to it, but I still think that Wendell Clark and Rick Tockett had the best fight in Maple Leaf Gardens ever. And I'll also tell you the best goal ever scored at Maple Leaf Gardens was Pete Mahovlich shorthanded in game two. Do you have a thought or a memory or uh, anyone talk to you about the Pete Mahovlich goal in game two against Tretjak shorthanded? Well, first I was going to say, you talk about that Wendell Tockett fight is back in the day when we were at Hockey Night, they did a feature where we went back to the gardens with Wendell and we stood, you know, it was just <laughs> I remember that, yeah. the ice was out and we just, people could find it on YouTube, <laughs> but we stood on the various spots on the ice in the corner where he fought talk at it inside the blue line where he fought McSorley. And we went over mm. some of the big scraps of his career. So that was a, a fun, fun piece. But uh, I mean, the Hovlich goal was spectacular and uh, he and Esposito were on the penalty kill. And, you know, they talked about not wanting just to dump it in to try and rag it as much as they possibly could after the face-off. And, uh, and then Pete saw the opening and, and, you know, broke through the defense and basically is lunging over top of Tretiak as he puts the puck behind him. And the Soviets were, were, were on the hunt at that time. It, it was a dangerous time in the game. Uh, they were Canada come out and changed their style from game one where it was all offense because they thought they were going to run them out of the rink. To figuring out they had to play a little bit of defense if they were going to survive, and that they had to be more physical and get on, get in on the forecheck, and then and take out some bodies. And uh, the Soviets were really discombobulated by that for a large chunk of the game. But they they chipped their way back into into it. Were within a goal and going mm-hmm. on the power play. So that was the turning point in the game. And you could argue maybe the turning point in the series. If they go down to nothing, is the series over? Of course not. Just, you know, the math doesn't add up. But you'd have to think the mindset of what was unfolding after the shocker of Montreal 7-3 two nights earlier to yeah. have lost that game in Toronto and to have blown a lead again to lose that game, that could have been devastating, especially when you think of how you know games three and four turned out with a tie in Winnipeg, another blown lead, and then uh, you know the, the dumpster fire in Vancouver – um, that that series, you know, it wasn't a must-win, but the series really hinged on the outcome of that game and just an absolutely spectacular goal by Peter Mahovlich, and you know he calls it you know the goal of his career, and uh, you know I think your point is a good one that uh, that might have been one of the best goals I've ever seen scored in that building, and I spent a lot of nights there over 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it was um, I think it was Greg Millen that told me. We're t- I was having a conversation with Millsy once about um, uh, a makeshift junior team that he put together uh, to face off in a sort of childhood. So when he was, like, I think 13 or 14 years old against a uh, traveling team from the Soviet Union, and they ended up beating them at Maple like, uh, Millsy's team beat the Soviets uh, at Maple Leaf Gardens. And Millsy made the point and I've never really looked at this. Maybe you know offhand. He said, I don't think a Soviet-slash-Russian hockey team ever won a game at Maple Leaf Gardens. I don't know if that's true. It feels true as I just sort of yeah. do a quick audit and scramble in my head. I, I don't know. But does that, I mean, I guess here's where we are. I'm not asking if it's true. I just rather if it feels true. But does that feel true to you, Scotty? Uh, it does feel true. And... uh you know, obviously Harold had banned some Soviet teams for a while, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, as we all remember. And uh, and also, when you think of the Canada Cups, they they never played the the Rus- Russians or Soviets at the Gardens. They're usually, some of those games are at West or in Montreal or in '87. The final and was in Hamilton and Montreal, so they never had those games at the Gardens. So yeah, it, 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 there might have been a a club team that came in at some point. Uh, and I know the Marlies had played some Soviet junior teams back in the day. Uh, 
but the, yeah, it, it, it feels pretty close to being true for a lot of different reasons. In talking to the players now, because I, I can't imagine, Scott, that, you know, 50 years go by and you're involved in, you know, the most, you know, uh, influential uh, international series that the uh, the sport has ever seen that you don't reflect on it as a player. And, and as you get older, you know, maybe change your opinion on some things. Maybe you have, you know, expanded wisdom and an expanded vision of, of what you just went through. You know, with the authority of time, you know, comes a different perspective. Um, to your knowledge, have any of the guys sort of, you know, rethought what they went through as, as they got older, whether it's Henderson, whether it's Esposito, whether it's Dryden, whether it's any of the guys? Anyone have any sort of profound changes of thought or opinion to your knowledge? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things I want to say is that, you know, none of us are getting younger and none of our <laughs> memories are getting better. But the, the <laughs> memories of all these guys, of the moments and, you know, just the circumstance and everything about that series were absolutely vivid. You know, I walked through it. I did all my research various times over the years and again, leading up to doing all the interviews and their their memories were this vivid of, of everything that happened. And I think... You know, I did a book, as I mentioned, leading up to the 20th anniversary, and and it was still fresh then, you know, and they hadn't really mm-hmm. uh, settled their differences on or off the ice. They still didn't like each other. They respected each other. It was a forced respect because of how that series evolved and became so great and dramatic uh, in a different way than had been expected. But I, as time has marched on is that they've learned to appreciate the other guys a lot more than what they did at the time and for years after and to realize that they were just guys who were, you know, playing hockey and uh, lived in a system that wasn't their, their doing and uh, appreciate the skills that they had, the pressures that they were playing under on and off the ice. And, you know, as again, I, it was Brad Park that told the story that, and it was just after that sort of 20 years in that ballpark where they were playing some, uh, anniversary games and they, they had one in Ottawa one night and after the game well he tells the story of uh, of the coaching staff being still abusive with the players with the uh, the Soviet players but uh, hmm. he just says that, you know after one of the games in Ottawa they saw that the players getting yelled at and this is old timers hockey now right and and they just said to the <laughs> said to the Soviet players when when your bus gets back to the hotel don't go into the hotel, do a circle and jump on our bus. And they jumped on the bus and they went across the river to Hull, uh, Hull, Quebec. And they went into, yeah. we'll call it a dancing establishment. And, oh my. uh, oh my. where they served adult beverages and they got together as a group that night and they, they drank beer and they drank vodka. The Canadians picked up the tab, which made the Soviets very happy. And they became, it was sort of, they found detente off the ice that night and, that sort of started an appreciation for what the other guy had been going through before, during, and after that series. Fascinating. Um, this is a, this is a great look at that series. Uh, the book is 1972, the series that changed hockey forever. Uh, author Scott Morrison with me. One one final note, and this is, listen, we see it all over the place now, but 1972 was not just a monumental, monumental eight-game event on the ice. It was also a monumental event on the rink boards. That was the first time we had rink board advertising, Scotty. Like later, yeah, the Minnesota, not in Nord- Canada, nodding, nodding, no, not in Canada, but uh, at Luzhniki. I think it, I can't remember which. They, they, I think Jockey might have been one. Uh, I can't remember who the other ones were, but that was the uh, the, the genesis. Lou Nanny, no surprise, uh, great businessman, and the Minnesota North Stars picked up on it later on in the late seventies, early eighties, and started to to have rink board advertising, but. I believe, Scott, that was the first. 1972 was the first time we saw rink board advertising. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. And as I, it's the funny part is that they didn't have them for the four games in Canada where you would think that nope. would be the obvious, uh, but they popped up for the four games in Moscow. So somebody got smart uh, along the way in that <laughs> series and uh, figured out there was money to be had, and I wouldn't be surprised if the... Mr. Eagleson and Mr. Ballard, who were yeah. friends at that time when it came to mm-hmm. making money, uh, might have put their great minds together, and uh, maybe even the Soviets too, because they knew yeah. as they might have been uh, communists, but they they're capitalists at heart, 
<laughs> That's what Brian Burke always makes the point to me. Uh, sometimes the communists are the greatest capitalists. And I always think yeah. back, you know, when, when you look at the, the Soviets and the Canadians getting together to, to do business, um, I always think of the great line by as shady a promoter as he was and is uh, the great boxing promoter Don King, who once famously said, um, where there's money, Scott, there's understanding. Where there's yeah. money, there's understanding. And we saw that play itself out uh, in 72 on the rink boards in Luzhniki. This is a great book, Scotty. Like, honestly, like everything you've done is, is so world-class. Uh, no surprise that this offering is another, uh, another log on that fire of outstanding uh, hockey offerings. 1972, the series that changed hockey forever. Uh, my guest has been Scott Morrison. Scomo, always good to catch up, pal. You be well. Thank you very much, Jeff. And yeah, folks, Father's Day, Father's Day is just around the corner. Mm, Perfect gift. It's a good one. Perfect gift. It's a, it's a so, great gift. But thanks for having me, Jeff. It's been great talking and catching up. Take care, pal. Yes, sir. You be good. The great Scott Morrison. Uh, he is an Elmer Ferguson Award winner uh, and someone that I miss working with dearly and has an encyclopedic encyclopedic memory rather uh, of hockey history and a lot of it documented in this latest book 1972 uh we'll hit a break that was a lot of fun man uh we'll hit a break here come back and uh, bring our producer matt marchese into the mix as we uh, get forward to game one by the way tomorrow we will get back to nhl hockey stanley cup playoffs game one it's media day uh in denver right now so uh, game one tomorrow is a colorado avalanche hosting the tampa bay lightning but you already knew that. So get to break, Merrick. Uh, the Merrick Show continues across the Sportsnet Radio Network. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Lou. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to the show. Uh, I want to thank Scott Morrison, uh, Scott Morrison for stopping by. The book is called 1972, The Series That Changed Hockey Forever with a forward from Phil Esposito, who is outstanding and I absolutely love on the, uh, the radio call, the Tampa Bay Lightning. Uh, meantime, Matt Marchese, our producer, back on the broadcast. How are you, Matty? I'm well, Jeffrey. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm I, like, like, well, first of all, <clears throat> I was too young for 72. I was three years old, so I missed it. 1976 was my first big tournament that really captured my imagination. And the, the final was Canada versus Czechoslovakia. And still to this day, I am fascinated by Vladimir Zarilla, the uh, the Czech netminder, who, by the way, was Dominic Hasek's favorite, favorite goaltender growing up. So you can understand my adoration as well for Dominic Hasek. And yes, he's the guy that I call the greatest goaltender of all time. And that fan lineage goes back to Vlad Zarilla in 76. But I was too young for 72. But I am fascinated by the conversation around it. And maybe since I'm too young to have been wrapped up in it emotionally, it gives me an and others who weren't uh, more of an editorial distance or ironic distance when uh, when commenting on it because I don't know if you found this but people that went through it whether they're you know the players on the team or the coaching staff or the fans or you know people that lived through it in some capacity are changed emotionally by it and have a really hard time separating their emotion during the season from having sort of any editorial slant. And that's what I like about ScoMo is he's able to do that. Yeah, it is a really interesting point. And that happens a lot. Like, I, I it's just funny to me how perspectives change on things as you get older. Of, of something oh, that yeah. but, happened, I mean, you, you know. And, and listen, nationalism is a hell of a drug, right? Like, you look, like this is all, <laughs> this is all wrapped up in a maple leaf and a hammer and sickle on the other side. So... I get it. I I understand it. Um, you know, I can look at it both positively, negatively, cynically. Like you could look at it and say, "Well, what was that? It was a two-team challenge tournament. It wasn't. You know, they were the only two teams. Like the first real tournament uh, internationally with with best on best was 1976 Canada Cup. Why don't we pay more attention to that? And specifically, when you consider, like, you could make the argument, Maddie that the 1976 Team Canada squad was the best team ever assembled if you go by the Hockey Hall of Fame criteria of which team has the most players in the Hockey Hall of Fame. It's sure. the 1976 Canada Cup going, yeah. going away. But 
the 72 one, I mean, just because everyone's so wrapped up in it emotionally and, you know, the country stood still and we all know the stories of, you know, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, the prime minister, you know, wheeling in televisions uh, to gymnasiums across schools across the country so everybody can pause and, and watch this game, like the entire nation. Like, that isn't lost on me, how, how you know, uh, how this country was in rapture about this series and living on every single shift. Like I could only imagine what Twitter was like, what Twitter would have been like if it were around in 1972. Oh my God, what a puddle that would have been. Like, do you ever think about that, Maddie? Do you ever think about, okay, which events do we wish Twitter was around for? 72 would be one. And then do you ever think, which athletes do you wish Twitter was around for as well? I always go with Gump Worsley. Old Montreal Canadiens, Minnesota North Stars, New York Rangers goaltender. Um, but let me throw this one back to you. Because to me, the answer might be the 19, 1972 um, uh, Summit Series for, for Twitter. And Gump Worsley is the athlete that I best wanted to see on Twitter who passed away long before Twitter came around. I will ask you same. Best hockey event and best hockey person you wish had Twitter while they were still around. Huh. So hockey event, I, I'm actually leaning towards something that was not on the ice. And that would have been the huh? what year the, the yeah. The the lockout from whatever it was, ninety four, ninety five. I believe that was the lockout. Yeah, that year. was the uh, when they that came was back the first with the 48, one. 48 games. Yeah, that was and listen, don't forget too, Gary Batman was still very much in his infancy as a commissioner of the NHL and kind of felt that he got I don't know about pushed around. That's too strong, but swayed by Bob Goodenow, you know, sort of yeah. intellectually, intellectually pushed. Like, hey, come on, like you have a stronger. You don't need a salary cap or even revenue sharing. Like your league is stronger than that. It's almost like that type of challenge from Goodenow. Um, and I wonder if that's part of the reason, although a lot of it, a lot of it was owner owner driven. Why you know one of the uh, one of the uh, the sidebars, although it wasn't really a sidebar, one of the main things I still believe from the o four i five o four o five lockout, one was a salary cap, and you know that was a hill the NHL was going to die on, and two, you know they were going to try to get the NHL Players Association in a, in a position to get rid of Bob Good. Now I still firmly believe those were the two targets that the NHL wanted to hit, and a lot of that started back in the lockout of ninety four. So my my thing would be at that time, because yes. listen, we've been through lockouts with Twitter, but that was the first one. And like you said, Gary Bettman was very fresh on the job. You, you know, actually, it's funny. It's very ironic that we talk about that because today uh, on this day, the Rangers beat the Vancouver Canucks in 1994 to win their first Stanley Cup in 54 years. So hmm. there's just the vision of him handing the cup to Mark Messier is in my head right now, but. It's interesting to see how the perception of Gary Bettman would have been at that moment. And and if that may have changed things. Like we 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 don't believe that Twitter has the power to fire a commissioner or president unless something happens, something that's not good. But in that mm-hmm. case, I wonder if the perception would have changed on Gary Bettman earlier than it has because we know how he's viewed on Twitter and by hockey fans. Listen, he's so done a very he good was, job in growing the game. So people forget that part too. Listen, he's done, and I, I know people don't like hearing it, but if you look at the history of um, NHL presidents, and John Ziegler was the last, Gil Stein was the transition between Ziegler and Batman. Um, if you look at the history of presidents, and I guess there's only been one commissioner uh, in the history of the NHL, no one's done more to grow the game than Gary Batman. Correct. It's it's, it's in, in, indisputable. Like, whether you like him, whether you don't like him, I don't get a sense that Gary Bettman cares one way or another. Um, but you cannot bring into dispute how he has been able to, to grow the business. Now, have there been some missteps along the way? Of course there has. You can't be commissioner of a, of a, of a sports league as long as Gary Bettman has. And he is the longest serving of any of the major sports without a couple of missteps along the way. Um, but no one has grown it like he has. And I've, I'm always reminded, I'm always reminded, I mean, we got this advice a long time ago and it's always stuck with me. Um, never lose sight of the number one job that Gary Bettman has, and that is franchise values. Mm-hmm. That is his number one job. 
Everything that he does is to drive value to franchise. That is his job as commissioner, as hired by the Board of Governors. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned Batman because I, I think this week at the BOG in New York, we're going to get more clarity if there is indeed an extension now for Gary Bettman. And if there is, and we expect that there will be, what the language in it will be as, as to what his role is. Like, I don't think that Gary Bettman you know, wants to wrap up anytime soon as commissioner. I still think he enjoys this. Um, but at a certain point, you have to be wondering about, okay, what's the next plan? And I've just always assumed, and I might be right on this one. I think I'm not the only one to assume this, that Deputy Commissioner Bill Daly takes over. That would seem to be the the obvious one, I think, to a lot of us. Um, he's had a lot of different portfolios. You know, international hockey is a is a big one, for example, for Bill Daly. I don't think it would surprise anybody if it just ends up, you know, there's some succession pro, uh, program where it transitions from from Gary Bettman to Bill Daly. Yeah, he I knows, don't think he knows the ins and outs. Like he's had he's had a look under the under the hood of the league for how many years? Just flat out makes sense. Anyway, uh, what were we talking about? Oh yeah. So uh, do you have an athlete then that you wish a uh, hockey player specifically? For me, it's Gump Worsley, and that is by the way. That is when anyone asks me, like, what hockey book should I read? It's a long out of print book. I know I'm going to sound hipster on this one, but they call me Gump is a book that I think all hockey fans will love. Great insight into, and it's written by Gump himself, Gump Worsley. Written by Gump himself. Great stories, certainly with his time with the Rangers, the Montreal Canadiens. And in it, like, can you imagine this happening today? In this book, he has, his, his, uh, he has a, a number of lists in the back of the book. And one of the lists is all the places in every NHL market where he likes to go drinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you couldn't do that now. I mean, you could. Well, you could, but it would but, be frowned upon. But but, but yeah, it'd be frowned upon. And Twitter exists to roast you. <laughs> yeah. So the the per, the hockey player that I wish Twitter was around for during his yeah. career is Brett Hull. Oh yeah, especially because, in '99 with the foot in the crease. Yeah. Well, I mean, just everything. Like Brett Hull was never short on words, or at least short on having an opinion. And obviously the game has gone away from characters like that. But when we look at, and I, I hate to break this to people, but a lot of the time, the guys that are the most interesting are not the superstars. The best talkers are not always the superstars. The difference here is Brett Hall had an opinion and was a superstar. And I think that's part of the, the whole reason why I wish it was around for him, because I feel like he would he would not shy away <laughs> from saying things that may or may not get him into trouble. Um, yeah. We've seen Brett Hall's personality come through uh, during his career, after his career. I've heard some, some of the funniest stories that I've ever heard involve Brett Hall. Like, you yeah. know, the stories about him going to training camp and um, fitness testing. And my favorite one, I think that I ever heard about Brett Hall was Ken Hitchcock was a big proponent of dumping the puck in. And Brett Hull went in on in practice because he kept harping on Brett Hull to dump the puck in, dump the puck in, dump the puck in. And he goes in on a breakaway in practice and he dumps the puck in the corner and he changes. And <laughs> apparently Hitchcock <laughs> lost his mind. And we've heard the we've heard the impressions of Ken Hitchcock yelling. Uh, somebody oh, did it on yeah. this program. I think it was Mike McKenna actually that did an impression Sounds of right. Ken yep. Hitchcock yep. yelling. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so that story just stands out to me because it's hilarious. But that's Brett Hall, that's the personality. And I think he would would have been great. Kind of like Brad Marchand is on Twitter. Because he doesn't tweet uh, often, yes. but when he does, it's always gold. Always. Uh, yes, uh, it is. I mean, they're, they're a, a... Just trying to think, it's funny too, because I, th I think a lot of them are goaltenders. Um, there, have been, there have been a few owners that I would have liked to have seen. Like, I would love to have seen Harold Ballard on Twitter. Like if you read Pal Hal by Dick Beddoes, I mean, every single page that I turn, I'm like, oh man, can you imagine if social media was around and Harold Ballard had access to it? Um, this might be a good one we do tomorrow on the show. Who's the hockey person you wish Twitter was around for? Yeah, we can I know, it's, I know, that. I know tomorrow's game wish, one. But that's a great that's wish. That's a good topic, wish day. Though. And wishes on tomorrow. I'll tip them off on And that how much one. are we going to talk like about so. that game? We've talked so much about this game that hasn't happened yet. 
That's what happens. When, hey, listen, between after Wednesday, we have until Saturday for another game. So guess what we're doing? Beating the heck out of game one and beating the heck out of previewing game two. Nah, Jeff, Jeff, you know how this works. We'll get super creative and have people on that nobody thought that we were going to have on, and we'll make it work. This oh, is yeah? summer is that radio. Pl- is that the plan? Is that how you're going to do it? Might as well. I mean, those are usually <laughs> the most interesting things that happen in radio and on podcasts anyway. Some I remember, the, listen, the, you, you, you mentioned lockouts. And when I was doing uh, the Leafs lunch show with Bill Waters during the lockout of 0405, first of all, it was a lot of fun because you had to feel like we had a whole year to do it. No hockey, okay? So we had to gimmick up the show and we did, uh, what was it, like WHA Tuesdays and Slapshot Thursdays. So every Thursday would be a member of someone from the movie Slapshot. Um, and Nancy <laughs> Dowd was fascinated. God, I would love to talk to her again who wrote the movie. Um, but WHA Tuesdays were great. And a lot of the people that we've had on have, have, have since passed away. And we think of people like Glenn Sonmore, uh, from Minnesota, but that was some of the more interesting stuff that I've, that I've, I think that I've ever been part of in radio was hearing Fun, some man. of those old, great WHA stories, stories, stories. Hey, so we, we, if you want to listen, radio dude, shows you want to give it, you want to gimmick it up like that? You want to gimmick it up like that? I am all for it. Jeff, we did we did radio shows during the pandemic, right? We we had so many former players on, GMs, coaches. I mean, we got some good stuff out of that. It's not the worst thing in the world. Not the first thing in the world to tell stories. And this was the story of today's show um, by way of thank yous. Uh, Thanks to Scott Morrison, author of 1972, the series that changed hockey forever, as Scott mentioned. Father's Day is coming up, or just if you like reading hockey books, that's every day. Check this one out. Uh, Vince Mercogliano from Loha.com in USA Today catching us up on the Rangers, uh, what this, what happened this season, and what we should expect in the offseason from Chris Drury and Elliot checked in from Denver. Okay, one more sleep, one more night without NHL hockey. I would encourage you all to watch some baseball. I'm a big baseball fan. I recommend you do the same, but Conduct yourselves accordingly. We will uh, rejoin each other tomorrow at noon, Eastern, 9 Pacific, for more of The Merrick Show.